0: If you're a founder building a company, you're going to eventually have to start hiring executives to help you scale. The people you bring into your leadership team can make or break your startup. I'm Nigel Robinson with Build Talent, and in each episode, we'll be speaking with a founder or expert as we discuss the art and science of hiring leaders, why it matters, and how you can keep up. Welcome to the Gradients Podcast. All right, folks, welcome back to the Gradients podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tim Tully, who has over two decades of engineering leadership under his belt. He had an incredible run at Splunk, scaling that from 600 to 1,800 in less than three years across product design, IT, engineering, and also, maybe more importantly, helped the company more than double its sales revenue from 2017 to 2020, resulting in $2.25 Before this, he was at Yahoo for 14 years as a VP of engineering and saw that scale from the good times and the bad times. And now is at Menlo Ventures and has all of this experience around hiring leadership, scaling a company, scaling products, and is here to share some of the game with us. Thank you for being here, Tim.
1: Hey man, thanks for having me on. Love to hear the numbers. They're maybe slightly larger than what you talked about, but who's counting, man? It's all goodness. So
0: yeah, fantastic success, nonetheless. And maybe we can talk about that journey for you as not just as hiring leaders, but you as a leader yourself coming up in the early Sun Microsystems culture, which I've only heard good things about. I've had the privilege of talking to a few people from Sun Microsystems, and yeah, I would love to kind of hear some of that story from your point of view in, in terms of what stands out to you about your own development now reaching this point?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. Not too many people want to hear about stuff that happened in 1996 or 1997, which is when I, I got there. Yeah, I mean, I joined originally as an intern. You know, it was way back when. And when you're an intern from undergrad, like, no much, right? I mean, you sort of just take your academic classes, which are mostly theory-based And then you're just like sort of thrust it into this environment with a bunch of like really professional engineers who you read about online that are doing really fantastic stuff. In my case, I joined the Java team at Sun super early. I mean, this is like 96, 97 somewhere in there. I mean, just people then just learning about Java, sort of understanding what it was. You're drinking from the fire hose at that point, just trying to keep up and trying to not feel like an idiot compared to all the smart guys running around and Just slurping up as much information as I could and staying there long hours, mostly just because there's so much to learn, frankly, that was the main reason. It definitely shaped my worldview in terms of what good looks like or what great looks like because there's world-class people at Sun and particularly JavaScript at the time. It's just a really remarkable place to be at a very special time on really the internet and computing for that matter.
0: Yeah, core Java became critical to the rest of the industry for sure. And then by the time you get into Yahoo, I don't know if they're quite in their golden age yet, but certainly in the run-up to it. And so you enter into Yahoo as still an individual contributor before growing into a leader. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I did a couple of pit stops at some startups. One of them was uh, founded by this guy, Rajiv Matwani, who was a CS professor at Stanford. And he stockpiled it with like the best and the brightest. Many, many sort of really the best IT grads were there as, you know, as well as non-IIT grads. But you can imagine if you're getting some of the best guys from the best schools in the world. Again, it's a similar but different experience from Sun. And I learned a lot there as well, I would say for sure. And then yeah, joined Yahoo 2003, still pretty much near the bottom of sort of engineering ranking, not the bottom, but pretty low level and joined the data team, which was before they even called it big data. There's like seven of us trying to build BI for various business units within Yahoo.
0: And then, so tell me about how the path to leadership, like what was happening in your mind? What allowed you to eventually reach that place of VP? Like, what is that operating level?
1: Yeah, I mean, I never really sought to do that. To be honest, I never was like, oh, I want to be some VP and run a a big team. Like, when it comes down to it, I'm actually more of an engineer than anything else and sort of a technologist. I mean, I'm still coding, even though I'm doing VC, like. I mean, I just wrote a bunch of code for a company we just invested in from one of my partners, an SDK for their product. I can't mention it yet, but like I wrote that SDK as a way to help show how much we like them and how passionate we were about the product. So I'm like, I'm writing tons of code still. We can talk more about that later. But the path was just, I was just trying to be the best engineer I could and learn as much as I could as quickly as I could and build great stuff. And over time, I turned into an architect, right? Which is sort of what happens. And then you start to have bigger responsibility as an architect. And then, next thing you know, you, you turn into like sort of the asshole architect. And sometimes they would call like ivory tower architect. I think I did a little bit of that as well. Interesting. But I had like a great manager by Scott Burke. He's now Barely, uh, which I think is like one of the Google companies SCTO, And he's the guy that I think really sort of changed my trajectory, to be honest. I mean, for whatever reason, he's like, you're going to go <laughs> manage this set of folks, like hundreds of odd folks in Illinois, who I was really close to and it's through some combination of maybe I was doing well and I needed to learn some empathy or EQ. That's sort of what started it, the impetus for it. And it's just like when you go from managing zero to a uh, hundred plus folks, like you pretty, you're thrown into the deep end and you either sink or swim with it. And yeah, that's really the story. And it's a different kind of architecture at that point, right?
0: It's like I've heard it said that at that level, you're no longer building code. You're building the teams that build code, which is a totally different problem set in some sense.
1: Yeah, I was doing both though. I mean, maybe I shouldn't have been, but I, like I said, I'm still an engineer in a lot of ways. And so that wasn't any different back then as well. But yeah, you're right, man. It's like, you can sort of reason about large organizations as sort of like an architecture of an organization, right? Like, how do you give it stability? How do you give it strength? How do you continue to invest in it? How do you replace some of the parts that are not working well? I think of it as that sort of like a big software architecture, but also as sort of like a living organism is the other sort of analogy or metaphor that people often talk about that I think works well. Fascinatingly, one other observation I had is, is having kids actually helps you with that as well, because you start to become less, I guess, selfish, to be honest. I mean, that's the honest truth and start to think more about others.
0: Right. And you were saying too, that like you come from this engineering background, maybe when you first started in leadership, it was much easier to think about it like software architecture versus like the living organism I guess, yeah, when do you feel like you start to maybe make that shift? You mentioned that they were putting you on a growth path to develop
1: more EQ as a leader. Yeah, I mean, they were sort of like, hey, go manage this team now. But then I started to consume as many books as I could, sort of on management. And then I came across the emotional intelligence series, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And uh, it's pretty eye opening. And then it's just years under the belt, right? You do it more and more. You see more successful projects come out. You start to grow the team. I think. Having that remote team partially be in Illinois was a bit challenging. I mean, not only are they two time zones away, but it's actually hard to get to because they they were at the University of Illinois, which is not Chicago, but right? you can't just like fly into Chicago. Right. I would have to fly to Chicago and then drive south in the ice in the dark or like a four person plane <laughs> into Champaign, Illinois. But yeah, I mean, that, that's really it, to be honest. And then it's sort of just if you're doing well, I guess it just sort of expands.
0: Right. And so you've developed now plenty of teams throughout your career. What are some of the common themes and learnings from these experiences? Now,
1: I think I could say a whole lot of things. If I were to distill out, maybe a couple. Early on, I used to think, okay, I'm just going to go hire the smartest people I can. Like smartest people can achieve anything if I just like throw them in a room. Then, like they're so smart that it'll just work somehow organically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll just come out of it. You know, that's just the engineer think. It's like, oh, I just want to work with other smart engineers. That's how engineers work, right? They want to work with other smart guys. And so sort of what I learned was that doesn't work at all. In fact, in a lot of ways, I think it's probably an anti-pattern in terms of how to do it. Interesting. And so what I sort of looked for was really, really sharp people. I mean, they didn't have to be max IQ, maybe no offense to anyone who I've hired. But I mean, oftentimes they were, but they don't have to be. I think what is best is a great balance of high EQ and high IQ. Because you got to remember, it's, it's always a team, like no one person ever, no matter what they claim or say they can do, like it's never one person that makes it happen. There's always a team behind everything that happens, no matter what it is. For sure. And so if you don't have the high EQ and you're not great working with other people and leading well or looking how to develop your own team, you have great feedback I and mean, there's no way it's going to be successful. And so it took me a while to learn that lesson. But over time, you can start to train a neural net that can sort of like recognize these people, to be honest. It's like a classifier. You can build like this like classifier that can recognize these people that have that combination. And I mean, in some ways, I feel like I can sort of figure it out in the first like five to 10 minutes of meeting somebody, to be honest.
0: Interesting. So you're not talking about like a literal neural net. You're talking about like a mental
1: model, you're saying? I mean, that's what neural nets really are is like in your head, but it's like... Yeah, yeah, I got you. Okay, I just want to... <laughs> yeah, I don't have some classifier trained where someone inputs their... I was like, is he literally coding that? Yeah, it's not like height and weight and age and gender, like... It's more um, the interface. Yeah. Right. Like in baseball, like scouts have this, they call it the good face. I don't know if you heard that, about this. Like Mm-mm. there's this notion of the good face. And so apparently scouts can, can like, they'll go out into the middle of America and see some high school kid batting and like they can sort of like see based on how he looks. Like they said that about Mike Trout, even though he was in okay. like this cold weather climate, which you typically don't recruit baseball players from. He's in like New Jersey. Like he had the good face. And I feel like in some ways, I'm not saying there's like good face on engineering leaders necessarily, but you can start to like pick up on it. And I feel like I'm probably about like 80% accurate, which I think is like good enough.
0: No, that's solid. That, that's a lot. That's pretty solid. What are, and, and obviously, like maybe when you started, you weren't batting 80%, but like now that you've developed or this heightened sense for knowing if someone spikes on that, what is it that you're looking for? How are you evaluating for EQ, for emotional
1: intelligence? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you can pick up on how thoughtful people are about other people with they surround themselves with, whether it's their friends or their family or people in their organization, or even their, their bosses or leaders, like you can sort of hear it in terms of how they talk about it, like how much they care, how passionate they are, and how much they want to sort of see other people succeed. Right. And that's sort of what I, if you would ask me, what do I miss the most about sort of operating roles? It's really like seeing the teams like achieve things that are really hard and win and then ship stuff that delights customers. I, like, I really missed that. But you know, like any other neural net, has like many, many hundreds of hidden layers. Like it's, it's hard to sort of like describe exactly what it is, but over time you sort of like, you develop this ability to, to pick up on it. You can see it in people's facial expressions and then just how they talk about themselves in the world. Like it's just, again, I'm not doing a great job explaining it, but again, there's like hidden layers in it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Maybe a harder question too, as if we needed to make it harder. But it's one thing for you to be able to have that sense and be able to weed out someone who has high EQ. How do you build a team that hires high EQ leaders? Because uh, you know, when you're CTO, when you're VP, you have the director level and they're hiring out their engineering manager level and they're hiring out their team lead level. And it's like turtles all the way down type of thing. How are you building your system to be able to continually funnel high EQ talent into your
1: organization. And again, I'm not sure I ever got it perfect, but I think it was okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. Not that I didn't emphasize it, but I think there's two things. One is just, you talk about it, right? And you you say like, hey, here's how I think about the culture of the team, how I think about hiring, how I want to hire people, how our teams should work sort of recursively down the org. I think the other thing is like, A players, beget other A players, right? You probably heard that like A players attract other A players. And I think the same thing for like high EQ, high IQ folks. It's like, oh, if you get these right leaders reporting to you, then they'll start to hopefully emphasize the same thing and look for similar attributes as, as you did. And so hopefully it trickles down all the way. Obviously, can't ever be 100%. That's pretty much impossible, I would imagine. But you sort of have to make sure it's happening at the very top with you as a leader.
0: Yeah, I've heard it. Said like shared values, shared mission. And if you have shared values, shared mission, it's like a really strong foundation for that to flow into the rest of the org.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's tons of these like sayings and mantras. Like, I'm really bad at remembering them. To be honest, I should just like go on intuition and experience (laughs) and I just sort of describe what comes up.
0: I mean, when you're in the moment, you're like in the trenches with it. It's hard to rely on a mantra when you're actually dealing with real people and real systems. You've also talked about this idea of organizational transparency. Why is that important to you? How do you create that in your organizations?
1: I mean, I think the thing there is is trust, right? And you need that to be able to achieve what you're trying to achieve, right? It's just, it's incredibly hard to make the tweaks and changes and adjustments you have to make to get to where you want to go. And so in software engineering, it's, hey, let's ship version four of whatever it is we're building. And so shipping software is always hard, right? I think ultimately software engineering is actually a people problem. It's not, Technical problem in my mind. I think most software is solvable. There's no like deep, deep, deep hard problems necessarily. Like they get solved over time with sufficient time and smart people and sufficient compute and capital. But what complicates all of that is people, right? It makes it really, really hard. And ego gets in the way. And and so because it's hard, there's a number of changes and adjustments and turns you're going to have to make on that journey to shipping version four of whatever it is. And if you don't have the truth and you don't have the information to do that, then you're not enabled as a leader or a team to make the changes needed to ship. And so when you get that kind of transparency, it's sometimes hard to provide for a team. If you're some mid-level engineer or mid-level management team, it's hard because you feel like, hey, if I have to report something's not working, then I'm going to get fired or it doesn't look good. And I think they don't understand that the folks above them inside of the organizational chain, I think they're less worried about that at any particular point in time. They're thinking about the macro and the, the goals of the org and the team. It's not any specific individual at any point in time, unless they're just like perpetually failing like all the time. Software is hard. And there's non-deterministic people problems in the way of shipping. And so it's just what it is ultimately is just making sure you get the results that you want.
0: Yeah, and I've heard that before of like making sure that you have systems in place to know when things are working and not working at the various levels within the org so that there's no kind of hidden... You have to know when things are broken, so there's no lag time where you don't find out about it three months later that this thing hasn't been
1: working well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just to do that. There's a couple models, right? There's the single, sort of so-called single-throat choke model, which is like ultimately any one person sort of owns responsibility for making a decision. So there's no committees or massive meetings that have to happen. Like if you just have one person, then they can just make a call and you can move forward. In other spots, I mean, just it sort of depends on the cultures of the team, the company. I also like semi-distributed models especially for like larger problems like I had this idea of like a three-legged stool of product managers, engineering managers and architects right with sort of responsibility divided across them. if they have someone that can sort of arbitrate decisions sitting on top of them then it, it works pretty well when it's more egalitarian and those three guys have sort of equal say in a matter and then it gets pretty challenging right because then you just have this complicated arm wrestling match, at Splunk, we had that just at the highest levels. We had like SVP of product or SVP of engineering. and Interesting. Chief architect, right? And those guys reported to me at Splunk. And so it was easier for me to sort of make those decisions, but you can imagine it gets harder as you go down the chain a little bit.
0: Yeah. And I'm thinking too, we come up to a lot of founders who are thinking for themselves where they need to hire. Like how senior is the person I need to solve this problem? And we try to help them think through What the difference is in the worldview between a senior EM to a director, to a VP, to a C-suite, because each of them kind of has comes with a different worldview and a different maybe like strategic leverage point of how they're going to affect the organization. How did you deal with that at Splunk where there was so
1: much to be done at various levels? Yeah, really good question, man. I mean, effectively, what we're trying to do at Splunk is like turn a traditional say, data center oriented product into cloud native SaaS database really is sort of what the job was. And so you're basically doing like open heart surgery on the patient while he's alive. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a big hairy sort of task we sort of signed up for there. And I think what it is, is ultimately what sort of makes that work is engineers generally want to succeed and do well. I mean, for the most part, you become an engineer because you like puzzles and problems and you like to build stuff. You probably grew up playing with circuits or Legos or blocks or, you know, video games, whatever it is, you probably did something along these lines. Not so often people do it for the money. I think it's sort of like the wrong reason to do it because you'll probably won't do that well if you're just doing it for money. But that being said, what I found worked really well for me when I was closer to the metal was engineers like to know exactly where they're going and why they're doing it. Like, who are they doing it for? Is this person going to actually use it? Why do they want it? How are they going to use it? Like they need to have all these answers all the time. And what I found was is if you can point to like where the top of the hill is for engineers all the time and like where the goalpost is, they'll go to it. Like they'll take like the shortest path, like the shortest vector directly to it and oftentimes beat it if it's super crisp. When it that doesn't happen, it's usually because they don't agree with what it is or they don't believe in it. Right. And so what I found worked well at Splunk was just being like super clear and consistent on exactly what we were doing. Like That's what we did. Right. And it's just, how do you break it down into smaller goalposts along the way? So it's just like a giant divide and conquer, which engineers appreciate. Like they just want to know where they're going.
0: Yeah. And so it sounds like there's like an ability to create that clarity for the team. Like operators who can keep that North Star burning bright, who can communicate it effectively, chunk it into sizable portions.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's what we did. It was like, okay, this is probably going to take like three years. I mean, oftentimes you always always lowball estimates, but we always thought, okay, it's at minimum two years, if not three, and it's going to take a long time. We're not going to do overnight. So like, how do we... Okay, we know what the end state is. How do you work backwards from that? Okay, well, it's just like humongous task. Yeah, we're not building a rocket ship, but you're basically transforming a product and company along the way. So, Okay, so we know we want to be somewhere X number of years out. How do you work backwards into a series of milestones that make that happen? Well, at month six, we want this one year out, 1.5 years out. Here's where we need to be at each point. And so what we do is have these milestones and then always do a ton of demos along the way. And so because there were so many teams that had to sort of come together with different pieces of functionality to make things happen, what the demos did was create forcing functions to force the integrations to happen. Because it, like if the integration doesn't happen, then you can't have a demo, right? You can't just like show something at the terminal. Like, that's not very interesting, right? Like, you want to see it in the UI. Well, then you need the designers that come to get the UI guys or the middleware guys, the RESTful Services guys. It all has to sort of like work. And I loved like the weekly or biweekly demos because engineers get to see things work in a sort of integrated way. Whereas, you know, typically, if you sort of didn't do that, it puts people on islands and then they're sort of like only touch points or like the interfaces that sit in the Google Doc that describes the interfaces. Like, that's no fun. Wow. Engineers like to show stuff off. And so every Friday, we sit in this like big conference room and people would like sign up to do their demo. And it's like you get this awesome feedback, people ask questions, engineers get FaceTime with other folks. And then if you have this forcing function, like I described.
0: Yeah, I can see like having those exhibitions makes it real for everyone too. Like you have these checkpoints, but if you're having kind of these exhibitions, these demos, every couple of weeks, people are able to see the progress in real time and it keeps them motivated, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When we're doing in particular at Splunk, I would say harder than starting from scratch, right? Because you have all this sort of like momentum in the product and all these edge cases to deal with. And you feel like you have to do feature parity in a lot of ways. It's sort of this like boat anchor you have to drag around with like a decade plus of features and sort of bugs that are now customers got used to having there, which became features. And it's a lot harder, I think, than starting from scratch to be honest, in that case. Like, it would have been easier for us to start from zero, I think, in some way. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah,
0: so, so to that, you have this two-decade long of being an engineering operator at leadership levels, at high-level strategic, tactical levels. What brings you to Menlo Ventures? And what was kind of your thinking in stepping now into the venture space?
1: Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the Valley, in Fremont. In the early 80s, you sort of see, I don't know, the layer cake, of like how things work. I mean, it, back then it was like semiconductor stuff and Apple, which I grew up with and then Intel and so on and so forth. I think it was sort of new venture was at the root of all that because that's where the capital comes from to get these companies going. And so it's was something that was like out there. I thought, oh, that might be interesting one day, but I never really thought it was really something I would ever do, to be honest. Because like I keep saying, like I like building stuff. And so it's, I just never thought I'd really do anything else than just like write code till I die. <laughs> to be, I be, mean, well, I am still coding. So maybe that will happen. But like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I do. Right. And so, you know, I did the CTO thing for around four years at Spunk. I always wanted to be a CTO. As an engineer, that sounds pretty cool. And then I did it and with some amount of success, I guess. I hope. And then what happened was my wife has been doing venture for a while. She'd been doing it before me for quite some time. And I just sort of watch her do it four or five years before I did it. You sort of like, it looks so fascinating when you sort of live with it, right? And you sort of see the the variety of companies and meetings and experiences. And it's just, it seems helping build out companies at a federated way, it's just so fascinating. And I thought, hey, if I ever met the right set of folks where I really want to work with these guys, because I always knew based on watching my wife that like you're kind of like joining of, it's like getting married almost. Yeah. I mean, it is a part, I mean, talk about like a, as a partnership, it's a partnership. Like I, like that word in the most literal sense is what it is. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm not sure if I'll ever do it. Cause I don't want to get like too far away from maybe what I am. But if I met like the right set of folks where it's just like really clicked and they're like, yeah, we want this guy who's really a technologist or an engineer to start investing in companies. then I might do it. And I you know, finally met the right set of folks and uh, made the leap. Nice. And do you have kind
0: of a, an investing thesis? You've been there about a year and a half. Are you still developing it or what's your
1: take on the market? The market's the market. I mean, people have heard about that as knowledge. I don't need to analyze or predict or. Yeah, yeah. I just mean from prognosticating anything around this from in terms of like focus areas and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's just if you've been listening for the last 20 minutes or whatever, you can imagine what it is. It's cloud database stuff, infrastructure, developer APIs, security, DevSecOps, DevOps stuff, definitely the AI ML focused. Things of that nature. And then I, I tend to like things that are more platform-oriented, right? So databases, heavy backends. I'm not really into like very narrow applications, per se. I like the scale. I like the challenge. I like the technical parts of it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really it, to be honest. Yeah.
0: And now you sit on the board of several startups.
1: You have this experience of really
0: cutting your teeth on something like Splunk and, and seeing the scale of Yahoo over that period. What is the advice that you give to them? I guess general themes, but also
1: kind of in relation to hiring. Do so you mean to the founders of the companies? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one, don't overhire right now, obviously because you got to preserve cash and hit your burn rate down in the economy because fundraising is getting increasingly hard. I think it's also hire doers, hire people who make things happen and make things ship. I think this is probably a little controversial. I think in some ways, that's what Elon Musk is doing, right? It's like, You read all about the statements that are what's happening on the inside. I mean, he's probably just calling it down to people who can just sort of move really fast and just ship a ton of stuff because there's probably this huge backlog now that's been created that they want to work against and make the product amazing. It's just that's what I would do as a founder. It's just hire the very best and the brightest with high EQ that make stuff happen, that ship great software as fast as you possibly can. That's really it. And I would really stay away from people managers as much as you... I mean, if you have like 50 engineers, they need some manager, right? But people who are like professional managers that used to be like senior vice presidents at some humongous company should not be joining, I don't think, as an engineering manager of like a 10 person startup right now. It's just... Unless they just like really want to get their hands dirty again. But I think you know what I'm saying is ship a bunch of stuff that's great, that delights customers as quickly as you can. And whoever can do that, that's who you should hire.
0: Yeah, it's like optimized for speed. It's a difference maybe between value creation, value maintenance
1: type of teams. Yeah, and if you're a great founder, you probably have a great network, is my guess, and you know where all the ten x guys are. I mean, you probably heard about this notion of like ten x engineers. I mean, I mean, I can't tell you how real that is. I mean, a ten x engineer. Once you've met one, once you've worked with one, you're like, oh, this is what they mean. Yeah, I mean, it's just. I mean, it's remarkable what a true 10X engineer can do versus like a team. They just move so much faster and they have so much more clarity and they can just achieve things that just sounded impossible and large and too hard and reduce it down to something almost beautiful and sort of elegant. Yeah, I was gonna say the elegance, yeah. Yeah, the elegance. It's just, they reduce a hard problem down to something that just sound pretty simple and they do it in a timely manner. I mean, I've met probably one or two hundred X engineers as well, I would say. And it's just, I mean, you could, I'm not even sure how to articulate as well. I mean, you could almost probably have them replace a six to seven person team and probably operate three to four times faster than that team.
0: Yeah, especially if half the team is junior. Definitely I've heard it said that like really smart people can come up with really complicated solutions. It's like, because they're so smart, they can come up with a really complicated fix for this complicated thing versus, yeah, the more maybe poetic solve.
1: I mean, it's like that Mark Twain thing, right? If I have more time, I write a shorter letter. In some ways, it's like, applies to software. Yeah, exactly. It's actually harder to make things simple. A lot of engineers, their intuition is like, oh, let's build this like Rube Goldberg machine and like make it crazy complex. It's actually hard to make it simple, it turns out. And that's what I look for, frankly, is like really smart people make things simple. And like, you want less surface area. Like you want less code. And I think a lot of engineers don't understand that initially.
0: And the other thing we're, we're talking about the 10X engineer, don't overhire, keep it to doers, people that can move quickly. How do you think about preventing a high cost per hire where it's like the cost of getting the talent can also be maybe a problem as you're scaling?
1: Yeah, I mean, if to be able to sell a vision, right? And I think if you can't sell a really, really compelling vision, it's going to get hard. It's going to be hard to hire people who aren't more than just like a hired mercenary coming in to sling a bunch of code to get paid a bunch of cash. Right. And that's not what you want. Right. Like if you have to hire people that way, then something's probably wrong. And you're probably not a great CEO, anyways, because you have to have that vision and be able to sell people on something, even if it's like insane. And so I definitely I think that's an anti-pattern for sure.
0: This is maybe interesting too, because you've had to hire leaders for a really long time. Now you're picking leaders in terms of the founders that you decide to work with. Are there parallels? Are there things that you bring over from interviewing? leaders to work with you to interviewing founders to partner with?
1: I still look for a similar profile, except now I may be an added ingredient of like a little bit of crazy. (laughs) Yeah. A really high motor and someone who is basically, feels like they've been placed on the planet to create a category, right? And that's what they wake up in the morning to do every day. If that's not what they're trying to do every day when they wake up in the morning, then they're probably not going to be great. As a founder, because that is your life that you're signing up for six to seven years if you can make it that long. Yeah. If you're doing it as a hobby or because you read too much TechCrunch and it sounds cool, that's the wrong reason because it has to become, it has to subsume most of your awake hours outside of, say, family.
0: Man, that's deep. Yeah. That just that sense of self that I was put here to do X.
1: Yeah. It's hard to find, man. It's hard to find because I think the media has created this situation where it's like cool to be a founder. In some ways, even that Sam Bankman-Fried, I mean, he's like a celebrity now, right? Like he's in the news, he's in mainstream media. Can't get away from him now. Even if yeah. you didn't know who he was before, you definitely know these days. Even though it's like a, this major screw up or f up, or I don't know, I'm not sure what extent of language I can use on your show, but like, and yeah, no, feel free. I mean, it's appealing for some people, right? They want to be in the news like that. They want to be newsmakers, and so it's like, oh, let me go create a company, right? And there's a lot of people out there who are doing that. It was shocking.
0: Yeah, I remember when I was doing the college talent rounds at A16Z and I was going to all these top CS schools and meeting all these flavors of founders before they meet people like you, where they're reading on about Tim Ferriss, they're reading about Andreessen Horowitz. And you see all those flavors for sure of people who want to lead from the front versus people who want to lead from the back versus people who can't stop thinking about this thing versus like, they think maybe it's a get rich quick route. It's definitely the way that people conceive of what it means to be a founder is kind of all over the place. It's much more rare to find the people who are the I was put here on earth to solve or to build, yeah.
1: And then you're there to help the team achieve. Like, what is your job as a leader, right? Is to remove obstacles and find ways to enable the team to succeed.
0: I love that definition. Yeah, that's the job. Yeah. What is, is there a question or a set of questions that you ask in every interview? Whether you're talking to founders, whether you're talking to VPs, directors.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't do like the, why is a manhole cover round or... Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like how many nails are there in the Brooklyn Bridge? Or like, this is like, those are kind of silly. I usually, it's a variety of questions, I would say. I usually like attenuate it to the conversation or who I'm talking to and sort of what I feel like is missing. I would say oftentimes, more often than not, I'll, I'll always sort of like ask, Like, why did you pick up the phone when we called, right? like That's a good one, yeah. I'm sure you get these all day. Why'd you answer? Yeah. Right. I use that one myself. (laughs) Okay. I like that one, right? Because you get this, and hopefully you agree, you get this like pretty wide distribution of answers. And there's different answers that work in different situations. It's really interesting. I think it's an interesting window in the people's minds and how they think and and their passion.
0: Yeah. Get into their motivation. You know, it's like there's a motivational core of why you chose to spend your time with me. Right.
1: Exactly. Interesting. Maybe because engineers, even though the market's crazy right now, and all that, like if you're a P4, P5 guy, you're probably getting pinged all day long. All day long.
0: All day. Yeah.
1: And so if you're getting n of these a day, you answer some fraction of N. Why did you answer this one? And I'm genuinely kind of curious, to be honest. It helps me understand what's working from my pings. And then like we just talked about, it, it's like an interesting window into people's minds.
0: Absolutely. So we're coming toward the end. I do want to ask, you've had such incredible runs, and I'm sure you know, you're know you just getting started over there at Menlo Ventures. But what is some advice that you would give to younger Tim, maybe in his first leadership role, or to some founder who's listening
1: to this right now, who's early in their journey? Maybe I'll make it more generic. Not. I guess in some ways, what I heard is like, what would you do differently? Maybe a different, I mean, what you're actually asking is. It
0: can be that way. I'm
1: trying to give you the, the range. Yeah. What advice would I give to young people early in their career? Maybe is an easier question to answer. I think that one, if you're an engineer to your 23, 24, or just getting out of grad school or what have you. Well, one is I would definitely advocate for grad school. There's no doubt about that. But maybe that's a different discussion. I think it's try to get deep as many things as you can be, right? And don't pigeonhole yourself into any particular role. Right. Like oftentimes people will get sort of typecast into being like an iOS developer. That's awesome. And it's like awesome if you're like the number one guy in the world or the best one in the world. I feel like in some ways that can limit you over time because iOS won't be there forever. Let's say it's FUBAR OS in 20 years or 10 years even, right? Or iOS looks nothing like it does once it lives in the goggles. I don't know. It's like it's not helping you a ton. And I feel like the best growth path if you're an engineer and you want to stay technical is to become an architect. I think that's a really fun job, to be honest, because you can still write code if you're good about it, as you should if you want to be a great architect. But to be able to do that, you have to be able to reason about a system holistically, like front to back. And if you like typecast yourself into just this iOS guy, it's just gonna be impossible for you to think about things holistically And all the illities of a system. That's what you should sort of familiar yourself with, familiarize yourself with, because that's what helps you understand what an architecture should look like. So I think it's go as deep as you can while being as broad as you can at the same time and build a bunch of stuff that has like nothing to do with your day job at home as a passion project. Like I got into mobile in, I don't know, right, with these the first SDKs and just build a bunch of toy apps to like track diaper usage of my (laughs) babies or like a remote control that didn't exist that I wanted to show pictures I took on the first iPhone on the TV. Like kind of stuff that I'm not going to make a bunch of money from, but to be able to get it to work from an idea actually requires a lot of research and time. And I would definitely do them in areas that you don't understand that well. And so what happens is it's hard to see like the forest, the trees, but what ends up happening is that kind of like work that you do in the background may not apply to your job today, but it like almost always pops up like somewhere down the line, like you can't see it now, but it is, I I guarantee it's always gonna pop up and you're gonna see it. And some decision you have to make or some hire you have to make or some integration with another company, like it's gonna happen and that knowledge will be invaluable. And you'll also be seen as this person that's broader and it helps you sort of rise faster.
0: I 1000% agree. This is, I was at uh, Afrotech last week and that was really the kernel of game that I was trying to give off to all the early career people. Is like we're in this era of deep generalists, where specialization is good. You know, we need specialists in some areas, but largely, when you're early like that, you want to go deep in a wide spectrum and just chase the curiosity. Yeah, because the like to your point, the muscle that you're building is going from idea to manifestation to idea to manifestation, and that muscle memory, like getting yourself that kind of momentum early, absolutely always pays off.
1: Yeah, I think it was like a is sprints in a marathon, right? It's like each sort of vertical is like a mile marker. Sprint to the mile marker on iOS, and then go to the next mile marker as fast as you can on Android, and then as fast as you can on like middleware, right? And just run these like sprints and get there, become as great as you can in the shortest amount of time, and just be full stack all the way through. Mobile, front-end, web, I, web UI stuff, databases, CI/CD pipelines, like everything. I love that. And it's, it's hard, right? And I'm not saying you have to be the very best in any one but what you want to have is this like this mind of being able to think about the whole thing as like a giant machine.
0: Yeah. Our, uh, our friend Shandan, the co-founder at Cointracker, he called it lantern consciousness of not like looking directly necessarily at anything, but like being open to the things that around you as you're making, as you're working.
1: Yeah. That's a great way to think about it. I think of it as building a house. If you're building a house, like you can't just be like a drywall expert, like you If you're building the whole house yourself, you have to understand electrical, plumbing, drywall, roofing, like digging holes, pouring concrete. Like it's, there's just so many different disciplines that are like pretty hard to be great at. Yeah. software just as it is for building homes.
0: And that that is really the challenge for founders, right? Like founders are trying to build these castles, maybe these monuments. They gotta know the full range of what goes into
1: it. Yeah, that's hard, man. Marketing, sales, product engineering. Leadership, it's... Yeah, founders hard. It's our job. I'm shocked so many people want to do it, to be honest.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I always encourage you, you know, buy off more than you could choose. See if you choke, I guess. <laughs> but okay, some wrap-up questions. And you've been in this world for a while. Who in the world of startups, of founders, of VCs, would you most like to take to lunch? Someone that you think highly of that you'd like to give some flowers to here.
1: I mean, probably the guy I mentioned earlier, Scott Burke. You don't read him about in the news every day. He's a CTO of a pretty big company, which is one of the Google sort of alphabet companies. So There's a great role. He's not in the news like Elon Musk is every day. I'm sure a lot of people will say that, but I would say Scott because when you start to get a little bit older, I mean, I'm not in my 50s or anything, but it's like, in some ways, I sort of wanted to ask him what he saw and like, why did he not let me just keep singing code forever and just be an asshole all the time? <gasps> Why did he even take that risk? Like I could have like lit the house on fire underneath him. Like oh, he knew, but he's always like, I don't like the idea of mentors. I hate to say that. Cause I'm like too proud, but I sort of see is like people that you grew up reporting to or whatever. It's like religion. You just like, you take bits and pieces of different people. And like, he's like one of the people who I sort of watched closely the most and probably had the most to do with sort of shaping who I am today. And so I want to go to lunch with him because first to thank him, but also to understand like, what the hell <laughs> was he thinking? He's like, you had the good face. You had the good face, Tim. <laughs> I don't think I had the good face. I think I had the bad face. <laughs> I, <don't, laughs> I just appreciate him a lot. And so I think if you ask that question, most folks will say, oh, Jesus or whatever. Abraham Lincoln. I mean, it's Scott Burke. Look him up. I
0: love that. I love that. Yeah, I'm going to check him out. Shout out Scott Burke. And then what is a, a book you're reading or a podcast you're listening to right now that you're getting a lot from that's really inspiring you or opening your mind up?
1: Man, I'm a huge fan of Scott Galloway. Yeah, I actually like Scott Galloway a lot. I used to say semi-controversial now. Yeah. As opposed to when I first got into him maybe like three years ago or something. Like, I He's not always right, but I don't think he always... Is this post-Big Four? Uh, yeah. Okay,
0: okay, yeah, yeah. Like He
1: doesn't have to always be right for me to want to listen because I think what he is is he's thought-provoking and he makes you think about things differently. I'm not going to invest based on his... Rec- I think there's this thing called the Galloway Index or the Reverse Galloway Index or something. It's like, yeah, I believe that. <laughs> it's something like you basically short whatever he recommends. Like, But he's interesting and then just books. I'm a huge fan of David Foster Wallace. He's the author of a book. I know that name. What? Yeah, what's his? He wrote this book called Infinite Jest. That's it's it, probably yeah. his biggest books, which they say, hey, is one of the biggest books of the 20th century. Yeah, they
0: say it's a classic Among Us
1: right now, yeah. Yeah, so I can only read that once, like every decade, I would say. It's just too big and thick. But it's these smaller, more accessible books that are just like series of essays. And so at any given point in time, I'm usually rereading one of his essay books just because... Interesting. His, his style of writing is unique. It's not really like anybody else that you come across. And it just, it forces you to think really hard because the sentences are hard, they're dense, they're long. There's a lot of content, uh, too much detail oftentimes, but it's just really entertaining to read. And so I'm flipping through one of his ones called Consider the Lobster.
0: Consider the Lobster.
1: Yeah, it's about a lobster.
0: We'll, try, we'll have to add that into the
1: description.
0: I love stuff like that. I'm glad to hear that he has these essays that are maybe a little bit easier to start with before diving into the Infinite Jest.
1: Yeah, go read the Infinite Jest, man. There's a long holiday break here. It might take you a couple of months, but um, yeah, definitely worth a read.
0: I'm definitely down. It's been on my list for a long time, but it's daunting. But man, thank you so much for being here, Tim, and, and sharing so much about your story and your perspective. I know that people will get a lot from this and uh, wishing you continued success at Menlo Ventures. Hopefully I'll see you around sooner than later.
1: Likewise. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. No doubt. Cheers. Cheers.
0: The Gradients is brought to you by Build Talent. To find out more about us, head to buildtalent.io and make sure to search for The Gradients in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click follow so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And on behalf of everyone here at Build, thanks for listening.